You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com All right, welcome to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you today from the rainy climes of Western Japan, unfortunately. But wherever you are in the world this evening, thank you for joining me for tonight's broadcast. And tonight I want to start at an unlikely uh, event and location, and that is the London 2012 Olympics. And for those of you who have been keeping a close eye on the Olympics this year, you may have noticed an interesting story developing that uh, is, well, I think it goes to the heart of a lot of different issues that we are facing as a society, as a civilization, as a species. And it's, it comes from a, what seems to be a somewhat trivial story, but I think has broader implications that were drawn out quite well by SovereignMan.com. This is Simon Black. I get this via ZeroHedge.com, but you can go to SovereignMan.com for the original post. It's entitled, Another Example of Why Central Planning is a Bad Idea. And it says, quote, I've noticed something strange over the past few weeks. Maybe you have too. It seems that every contrarian website out there has joined together to collectively bash the Olympics and anyone who tunes in to watch. This seems nuts. Nobody should feel guilty for wanting to see athletes in peak condition push the boundaries of human performance. I certainly don't feel guilty about it. In fact, I came to the UK several days ago specifically to catch some of the Olympics live. Unfortunately, it turned out to be much more difficult than I had expected. As it turns out, the British government has centrally planned Olympic ticket issuance in a way that's so remarkably inefficient, it would make Karl Marx look like Steve Jobs. There's only one way to buy London Olympic tickets, through their official office that is controlled by the government. They've even solidified their monopoly by making it a criminal offense for individuals to resell Olympic tickets. The concierge at my hotel, an affable Italian named Paolo, explained to me that the police even came around to warn, i.e. threaten him, against helping hotel guests find tickets. Paolo directed me to the government's official website so I could buy tickets the legal way. I quickly found out how Byzantine it is. There are all sorts of ridiculous hoops to jump through. If you're a resident of the UK, you follow one procedure. If you're a resident of the EU, you follow another. If you're a resident of other countries, you follow yet another. Then, after creating an online profile and giving them all sorts of personal information, they'll actually mail, i.e. snail mail, the physical tickets to the address you give them in your profile, and only to the address of your legal residency. It doesn't matter if you're traveling. The alternative is that you could spend a couple of hours going to one of the ticket offices, all of which seem to have been strategically chosen for being in the most inconvenient locations possible. Even if you can get through that maze, they've really screwed up their inventory management. Nobody seems to have any idea of what tickets are available at any given time. An event may be sold out at 10am, then have hundreds of seats available by noon. The government's central planning of Olympic ticketing has been a complete failure, perhaps best evidenced by the thousands of empty seats at many of the events. Annoyed beyond belief, I asked the concierge at my hotel if there were any alternatives. He said, maybe, told me to write down my phone number and wait. Within a few minutes, my phone started ringing off the hook with calls from ticket brokers. Since the government made it illegal for these guys to sell tickets, they've been pushed into dodgy underground boiler rooms for the past two weeks as if they're Prohibition-era bootleggers trying to move a shipment of hooch. Negotiating ticket prices with these guys, I couldn't believe we were talking about a sporting event. It seemed more like an arms deal. 
One guy asked me three times if I was a cop, and another refused to give me his phone number when I said I needed to call him back. Totally crazy. The government has managed to monopolize an entire industry and screw it up with Soviet-level inefficiency, then make it a criminal offense for the private sector to fix it. All right, we'll leave the quote there. There's a few more paragraphs we'll go over on the other side of this first break. But suffice it to say, this is a small example of a very important point and one that goes to the heart of the control freak nature of the people who are driving us into the world of tyranny that we are documenting here on Corbett Report Radio every day. So let's take a short break and we'll be right back to continue going over this. All right, friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight we are talking about why central planning sucks. And just before the break there in the first segment of tonight's episode, we were going over an article from SovereignMan.com, another example of why central planning is a bad idea, where he talks about the struggle that he went through to try try and ultimately fail to purchase tickets for the London 2012 Olympics, which have been centrally planned. They've been uh, shunted off into government land where the government has exerted a monopoly over the selling of uh, of Olympic tickets. And not only are they exerting that monopoly, they're enforcing it by actually criminalizing the selling, uh, the reselling of Olympic tickets. Um, just a ridiculous idea in and of itself, but something that I think goes to the heart of the, uh, the idea of the control freaks that we are really facing when it comes down to the ideology that is behind, or at least justifying, this uh, encroaching tyranny that we're documenting here on the broadcast on pretty much a daily basis. So let's just finish up with that article. We've left uh, with the statement that uh, this is totally crazy. The government has managed to monopolize an entire industry and screw it up with Soviet-level inefficiency, then make it a criminal offense for the private sector to fix it. So continuing... This is a typical, this is typical of how a government operates. They take a very cavalier attitude because they don't care about results. They only care about maintaining control. As a result, they run their operations based on the premise that people really have no choice. With regard to Olympic ticketing, this is mostly true. My my choice was either to go through the system legitimately, albeit painfully, deal with some dodgy backroom ticket broker at three times the price, or just watch it on television. In our regular lives, though, we do have a choice. A single government need not have a monopoly over our lives. As human beings, we are fundamentally free. We can choose where we live, where our money lives, where we pay taxes and how much we pay, where to structure our companies, where to hire our employees, which regulations to adhere to, etc., You can hold your savings in one country, store gold in another, own property in another, have legal tax residency in another, live in another, have a business in another, etc. This is what I call planting multiple flags, essentially using the system against itself. And it is by far one of the most effective ways to take your freedom back and end your home government's monopoly over your life. All right, well, at the end there, I'll let you uh, parse what he's talking about there in terms of multiple residencies, etc. Personally, I'm not playing the game of trying to game the system in order to try to get freedom. I'm looking at what freedom actually is and how it functions. So I think he makes a very important point in the beginning of that article talking about 
the very dangers of the type of monopolistic system of control and central planning. And those dangers are obviously quite limited and really more of a minor inconvenience when we talk about something like the London 2012 Olympic Games. Well, if you don't get to see some of the games, it's not exactly the end of the world. It's pretty stupid because there are obviously a lot of people around the world who would who are coming to London in order expressly to see the games. And uh, anyone who has to put up with that level of rigmarole in order to do something that the government presumably wants people to do anyway, well, clearly there's something wrong with such a system. But that is somewhat of a trivial example. And the question is, how does this connect into the larger example of the tyranny that we're seeing manifesting itself not only in America, but in country after country around the world? As we head into some very dark times, economically and in terms of the police state and in just about every other category we can imagine. Well, how does this nexus into the bigger picture? Well, we can get some idea of that by taking a look at how central planning and the idea behind central planning, the ideology that underlies that, the idea that we live in a mechanistic, deterministic universe where scientists can rationally work out what everyone needs and wants and then distribute the resources effectively and rationally in order to meet those demands. Once we understand how that ideology undergirds the globalism, the centralization of authority, which is very much what we're working against here on this broadcast in a number of different ways, then we start to see very clearly how this nexus is into the bigger picture of some of the macroeconomic and macro geopolitical issues that we're talking about here. So let's take our cue from an Asia Times article that was recently posted. It's by Emmanuel Simia, and uh, he writes about uh, a very interesting topic, the European debt crisis, and how this is playing into the hands of those who want to centralize planning and control over our daily lives in the hands of a few ruling elite. And uh, in some ways, there are people out there who are saying this is a great thing. But of course, those are the people who have subscribed to this ideology of central planning, which we're going to decimate tonight on the broadcast. But let's get into this article. It's called Turning Back to to Napoleon. It was posted at atimes.com on August 9th, 2012. Quote, sentiment in Japan for further decentralization of administrative and budgetary power from the central government to local administrations is running high. In Europe, it is the other way around. In the old continent, the economic crisis is silencing the centrifugal forces that have been challenging state centralism tendencies over the past two decades. This turnaround in the ever-growing empowerment of peripheral authorities from the political center is basically concerning debt-ridden countries like Spain and Italy, but it is a situation that Germany, the engine of Europe, is also facing. The combined debt of Spanish regional administrations has reached 178 billion U.S. dollars and accounts for 13% of the country's gross domestic product. Catalonia Autonomous Region, a sort of Spain's equivalent to China's Guangdong province in terms of domestic industrial importance, has accumulated debts of $51.6 billion, the Spanish Central Bank has reported. The crisis in Spain is at least playing into the hands of the central government as to diffuse autonomist or separatist claims from some regions, notably the age-old demands from the Basque region for full independence and from Catalonia for a more enhanced autonomy. The Catalan region government, regional government is set to apply for a new $22 billion Republic Rescue Fund, which the government in Madrid has set up to help its cash-strapped regions. In spite of debts that are worth $8.2 billion, the Basque administration has stated that it does not need any form of bailout. In Italy, regional administrations have, have $49 billion of debts, according to the country's central bank. 
Faced with both a high sovereign debt and a current account deficit, the national government led by Mario Monti has shelved the long-standing issue of the country's federalist reform, as well as any debate about whether local governments should raise taxes on their own. Because of the crisis in Europe, the fever of neo-centralism has been also spread across Germany. In late June, the federal government in Berlin agreed to bail out 16 indebted lander regional governments, whose debts were worth $765 billion, according to the Federal Statistical Office. In exchange for this financial help, German states should give up some of their fiscal power to the central government. Centralization of power is also taking hold within the European Union, though the completion, through the completion of a European common budget, a more integrated fiscal policy, and a banking union. This is the institutional framework under which Germany and the other European northern states could agree to the mutualization of debt loads contracted by several EU countries. It is worth noting that in 1787, the United States strengthened its federalist power once it took charge of the combined debts of its 13 original states. Thomas Sargent and Christopher Sims, both winners of the 2011 Nobel Prize for Economics, have just suggested this kind of political way forward for the EU financial crisis. End quote. Well, we'll leave the article there. It continues on. I suggest you go and read through that to the end. But let's just take it from that intriguing point that Mr. Simia inserts into this whole, whole debate, talking about the U.S. in 1787 when the federal government assumed the powers of, uh, sorry, assumed the debt of the states, which was a very interesting move that was calculated by America's first Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton. And if you've been following the Corbett Report podcast in recent weeks, we had a Meet Alexander Hamilton episode of our podcast where we examined this issue, this idea of Alexander Hamilton, that, well, if the federal government wants to establish its good credit, what it has to do is take on the uh, the debt of the various colonies, the various states, as they had existed to that point as colonies, to take those debts onto itself and to begin paying them off. And if it can do that, it can establish its credit and good name. But part of the insidious part of all of that idea was the idea that it would inherently give more power to the central government and to federal authority, which was what Alexander Hamilton really wanted to achieve. He was a centralist. He was someone who believed in federal power. He believed in a lifelong monarchy and many other ideas that went absolutely counter to everything that the American revolutionaries had supposedly been fighting for. But Hamilton got his way and uh, the, the federal government assumed the debt of the various colonies. And through that, through assuming the debt, it gained the power over those colonies that comes with saying, hey, I'll cover the bill you can owe me later, which is a tactic that I'm sure we all understand in our regular daily lives when someone buys you a free lunch. Well, there's no such thing as a free lunch. They want something in return. So that very idea is being used in this European Union example as a political way forward. Well, if the EU just steps up and issues those infrastructure bonds or whatever joint bonds they want to try to issue, well, they can assume the debt of the various uh, states, the nations that have hitherto existed in Europe, and make the EU into more of a cohesive central planning authority. And it is interesting to note that along, along with Alexander Hamilton's idea of taking on this, the debts of the various states was the idea of a central bank. And the first real central bank, the first bank of the United States, came in under Hamilton and was part of that process of centralizing power in the federal government. And of course, the central bank that has existed for the past hundred years, the Federal Reserve, is the latest instantiation of that idea of the central planning of an economy that happens 
happens at such a basic level that most people don't understand it is happening. But the Federal Reserve controls the money supply in order to control interest rates, or that's what they like to say. But of course, we know that has led to the devaluation of the dollar by 99% over the past hundred years. So the, clearly, there's something other to it, and I think that other agenda that is there behind the Federal Reserve and central banking and central planning and central authority is really the control freak nature of the people who are bringing these systems in who want to use this as an excuse to put more power in the hands of themselves and their cronies at the expense of you and me this is a very important point let's take a short break we'll come back and start breaking down some of the uh, the real basic philosophical problems with this idea and then we'll start getting into some more specific examples hold on right there we'll be right back Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're going over the reasons why central planning sucks, and we're trying to outline them in as much detail as we can. Obviously, this is just a one-hour radio program, so we're probably not going to create the single uh, document here by which you'll be able to uh, to prove this to the satisfaction of your friends and fellow partygoers or wherever you may be trying to make this point. But hopefully we can at least shed light on some of the reasons why central planning is doomed to fail inherently and is inevitably used as an excuse for the justification of the types of tyranny that we are very much opposed to here on this broadcast. So let's take a look at one of the underlying philosophical arguments for why this simply does not work, why central planning is doomed to fail. And that was developed in the uh, early part of the 20th century by a couple of related philosophers, economists, (laughs) excuse my tongue-tiedness, and uh, and people who are uh, still held in high regard by many, and I think there are certain things we should be wary of with uh, with people like these. But still, I think it's important to take a look at what they argued rather than uh, their associations and who we think they are. So I'm talking about von Mises and Hayek, who developed the uh, the philosophy behind the economic calculation problem, which is at the heart of why central planning is doomed to fail inherently and from its outset. And uh, basically, well, I won't uh, summarize what they say. I'll I'll leave that to um, Mises.org, which on their wiki has a description of the economic calculation problem and what it is. It says the problem referred to is that of how to distribute resources rationally in an economy. The free market solution is the price mechanism, wherein people individually have the ability to decide how a good or service should be distributed based on their willingness to give money for it. The price conveys embedded information about the abundance of resources, as well as their desirability, which in turn allows, on the basis of individual consensual decisions, corrections that prevent shortages and surpluses. Mises and Hayek argued that this is the only possible solution, and without the information provided by market prices, socialism lacks a method to rationally allocate resources. Those who agree with this criticism argue it is a refutation of socialism and that it shows that a socialist planned economy could never work. The debate raged in the 1920s and 30s, and that specific period of the debate has come to be known by economic historians as the socialist calculation debate. And I will let you continue reading into that. There's quite a lengthy discussion here, and there are links to some of the fundamental uh, texts on which these ideas were, uh, in which these ideas were fleshed out and developed, including von Mises' 
um, text The Impossibility of Economic ca- uh, Calculation Under Socialism, and Hayek's The Use of Knowledge in Society. And I think there's a lot to be said here, but let's just tease out some of the ideas and we'll turn over to the Bastion of Truthiness Wikipedia for this on their entry on the economic calculation problem. They give this example, which I think goes some way towards highlighting what the what the underlying problem of this idea of the deterministic mechanistic universe that underlies the assumptions of the central planners is it says ludwig van mises gave the example of choosing between producing wine or oil it will be evident even in the socialist society that 1000 hectoliters of wine are better than 800 and it is not difficult to decide whether it de- desires 1000 hectoliters of wine rather than 500 of oil There is no need for any system of calculation to establish this fact. The deciding element is the will of the economic subjects involved. But once this decision has been taken, the real task of rational economic direction only commences, i.e. economically, to place the means at the service of the end. That can only be done with some kind of economic calculation. The human mind cannot orientate itself properly among the bewildering mass of intermediate products and potentialities of production without such aid. It would simply stand perplexed before the problems of management and location. So Wikipedia explicating says, such intermediate products would include land, warehouse storage, bottles, barrels, oil, transport, etc., Not only would these things have to be assembled, but they would have to compete with the attainment of other economic goals. Without pricing for capital goods, essentially, Mises is arguing, it is impossible to know what their rational or most efficient use is. Investment is particularly impossible, as the potential future outputs cannot be measured by any current standard, let alone a monetary one required for economic calculation. The value consumers have for current consumption over future consumption cannot be expressed, quantified, or or implemented as investment is independent from savings. Some very important points going on here, but for the underlying point, I think it, it suffices to say that what we have here is a system where even if we can determine the will of the various economic actors in a society, and there are huge problems with that, as we'll see in the next segment, but even if we could determine that, trying to determine how each of those independent capital investments and infrastructures and all of the goods that are required to make that uh, that product deciding the best way to allocate those resources and how to acquire them and how to distribute them, how to use them, is itself another layer, an order of magnitude more difficult than simply the base problem of determining what is needed to be produced. And as I say, the problem of what is needed to be produced is itself intractable, as has been proven time and time again by history itself. So what we have here is a system that is fundamentally unworkable. It does not work. It cannot work. It cannot rationally make decisions about what types of goods the economy is going to need. And it's that uh, devolves into a debate about mechanism and determinism in the universe and the humans and free wills and how we determine the rational uh, way to produce uh, goods for people who are fundamentally irrational, etc., etc. But there's a lot to go into, but let's just leave it there for now. The economic calculation problem, I suggest you check, check into it. Let's take another short break. We'll be back to break down more of the problems with central planning right after this. Thank you. 
All right, welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Here we are on this Friday night edition of Corbett Report Radio, tackling the question of central planning and trying to delineate the ways in which it fails. And we've just gone over the idea of the economic calculation problem, so that in itself assumes that if we can determine what people want on a societal scale, in terms of whether they want uh, wine rather than oil, etc., etc., if we can determine that even, uh, it's still impossible to calculate exactly how to garner and to acquire and to utilize the resources behind the production of those goods in the most rational way. Uh, so there are going to be in inefficiencies built into the system. It doesn't mean that a centrally planned economy can't exist. It can certainly exist, but it will inevitably fail. And, uh, well, I mean, we don't have to uh, rely on any particular example for this, but, of course, what happened in the Soviet Union is the classical example of that type of failure of the central planning system. And there are a lot of things to be said there, but I think let's go to the more underlying point behind all of this, which is the idea that there is this mechanistic, deterministic universe from which people who are scientifically rational enough, or even computers that are rational enough, can somehow calculate all of the various variables involved, come to some sort of understanding of the variables involved, and then calculate them all in some grand equation that's going to tell us exactly how to order order and regulate society. I think it's interesting to look, A, at the problems with the determinism and mechanism of the universe itself, and I think there's a lot to be said there. I'll be expanding on that on the next episode of my podcast to be released this coming Monday. But even taking that aside for a moment, it's interesting to look at the psychology of the people who are attracted and fascinated by this idea. The idea that we can calculate everything, order everything, and that there's these equations and computers that can somehow order and regulate this entire society, this is civilization, the humanity itself, the entire planet, billions of people with their own conflicting and, and often illogical and irrational aims and goals coming into this giant conflict in in all sorts of different ways can somehow be resolved if we can just find the right equations to order society and the right supercomputers to tell us how to use each and every individual resource. And it is the psychology of the social control freaks, the people who want to control every aspect of everyone else's life in order to create their version of a utopia. And there are, uh, th- there's a question to the extent that people even actually believe in that and even believe in the, uh, the utopia. I think there are, s- there are certainly central planners and people who ascribe to those views who really do believe that they will be able to create a more perfect and just and well-ordered society through their central planning. But I think those people are often used as gullible and helpful tools by the people who are standing above them who don't care anything at all about society and about making people happy, etc., etc., and all of the other things that they say to make people uh, go along with their central planning ideas. They only care about getting more and more and more of the share of the pie for themselves and leaving less and less crumbs from their table for you and me. And those are the people who are really in charge of the system when you step back and take a look at it, like people like Anthony Sutton and others were doing for years, carefully exposing the banksters at the very top of the pyramid and how they puppeteer the utopian idealists who are giving you the ideas, oh, central planning, if we can just get the government to tell us how to do everything, then we can achieve nirvana. Well, I don't think the people at the very top really believe that. But even if they did, I think it's very dangerous, very dangerous indeed, to fall into that utopian thinking that we are going to reach even a better state of society, let alone a perfect society, through the 
consolidation of all of this power in the hands of a very, very, very few people. I think that self-evidently only serves to just to uh, serve the ends of those very small few people and not the ends of society itself. It's the idea of the beehive, that we are all just drones, and that if we can just learn our place in society and stick to it, then everyone will be happy. And I don't know about you, but that to me is not a vision of a, a future I want to live in. It's not a vision of a perfect future. It is a vision of a nightmare, hellish society. And that's the type of society that underlies so much of this tyranny that we see coming in. Well, if the government can just know everything that you're doing at all times, then they can make you secure. They can uh, they can uh, provide for you in a better way. If the more information they have about you and your personal life, the better they'll be able to slot that into their calculations and predict what's going to happen so that they can more uh, effectively manage the economy or whatever the case may be. And uh, we can Tie, tie that back to the sentient world simulation and other things that we've talked about before. But let's examine this idea and the control freaks who want to propound the idea that central planning is the answer. What motivates them and why is this something we have to be nervous about? Well, this is something that I tried to address in one of my videos that was released last year. It's called The Last Word on Utopia. It's available on YouTube, but it is also available from my website, CorbettReport.com. The link will be in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com slash radio after tonight's episode airs. Uh, but let's take a listen to some of this uh, this video where I tried to flesh some of this out and explain why utopianism is a bad thing. So let's listen to the clip. Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with the last word on utopia. Those with evil intent are seldom courteous enough to announce their intentions openly. As history has shown us time and again, oppressive tyrants seldom come to power campaigning on oppression. Quite the contrary. The most pernicious evil always presents itself as something necessary, something transitory, a mere waypoint on the road to the land of milk and honey. In this way, the masses can be led to not only tolerate the most intolerable conditions, but actually to support those who would seek to rule over them. In the early days, even the most ruthless dictators are wildly popular, by the time the public realizes it's been had and the blood starts flowing in the streets, it's too late. The regime is in place, and the promises that the tyrant used to gain power are already replaced with the yoke of repression. In France, the revolutionaries rallied under the banner of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Within a few short years, their revolution had morphed into the reign of terror, a bloody dictatorship of the guillotine in the name of securing the utopia that the public had been promised. Even at the height of the campaign, as the blood of the people flowed in the streets, Robespierre argued that the bloodshed was a virtuous outgrowth of democracy, and even wrote that it represented the despotism of liberty against tyranny. In Russia, the Bolsheviks came to power under the slogan, Land, Peace, and Bread. Within just five years, however, Lenin had ensured a smooth transition from czarist dictatorship to Soviet dictatorship. He dissolved the Constituent Assembly, which the Bolsheviks did not control, after its first meeting. He disbanded the factory committees which promised to give industrial workers democratic control over their own operations, and he vastly expanded the state security services which imprisoned tens of thousands of anti-Bolsheviks and summarily executed thousands more. In Cambodia, the communist movement grew in strength and size on the back of the promise to restart civilization and return to year zero, a mythical paradise in which agrarian peasants would become rulers of their own destiny. On his rise to power, Salah Tsar, the leader of the Communist Party, stopped living with and consulting with the party leadership. 
Once he had attained control of the country, he changed his name to Pol Pot and began an extermination of two million of his own people, a full quarter of the country's population. One out of every four people in Cambodia died in Pol Pot's delusional pursuit of his imagined utopia. Nor are these by any means the only examples of this phenomenon. The English roundheads overthrew the king just to find that they had replaced him with a lord protector of aristocratic pretensions. Mussolini marched on Rome on the back of mass public support and proceeded to set up a prototypical fascist dictatorship. The Chinese were promised a great leap forward and ended up bathing in the blood of 60 million of their countrymen. Time after time, the masses have been whipped into a revolutionary fervor by leaders promising a perfect system of governance. And time after time, they have paid for that fervor with their lives. The term utopia itself was coined by Sir Thomas More in a tract written in the early 1500s. The name contains a play on words between the Greek term for nowhere, ou, and the prefix eu, meaning good. Utopia, then, is both an imaginary world, a nowhere land, and a good place, an ideal that we can strive toward in thinking of a good or just system of rule. More's utopia was distinctly socialist in nature. There is no money or private property. The economy and the workday are centrally planned to benefit the state. The community eats together in a common dining hall. Children are separated from their parents to be raised by nurses. In many ways, this depiction of a perfectly harmonious, perfectly regimented society laid the foundation for the last 500 years of utopian socialism. Time and again, utopian revolutionaries have returned to these ideas, whether from a misguided attempt to create an ideal society, or a cynical understanding that the utopian urge can be commandeered by an unscrupulous dictator for his own advantage. In the end, the results are always the same. The promised workers' paradise never seems to come, and the few at the top reap all the benefits. In modern times, a technological idealism has been grafted onto this utopian socialism to create an even more enticing strain of thought with which to capture the imagination of the masses. As the mechanization of the industrial era increased productivity beyond what could ever have been dreamed in the pre-industrial era, a group of technocrats emerged, promising a world in which technology itself would make possible a world of plenty. In this technological utopia, the machines would do the work, and the workers would be freed from the mundane jobs that had always defined their existence. The Bolsheviks especially latched onto the promise of technology in the early days of the Soviet Union. Aware of the enormous task before them, the Soviets hoped to create a modern, industrial, centrally planned economy out of the poor, feudal, agricultural Russian state they had taken over. The centerpiece of this technological transformation of Russia was to be Magnitogorsk, a steel manufacturing city in the Urals that was mandated into existence by Stalin's first five-year plan of 1929. The city was to be built from scratch and serve as an example of a technological utopia. The public was shown propaganda films depicting a modern paradise, a testament to the wonders of industry and the technocratic method. The reality, of course, turned out to be exactly the opposite of what the public had been promised. Today, Magnitogorsk is is as dilapidated as the American industrial cities it was based on. The city is dirty and run down. Residential areas are are washed in the nauseous fumes of the factories that were supposed to be the marvels of this modern age. The residents, far from delighting in a world of plenty, long suffered under the yoke of Soviet repression and struggled to get their daily needs fulfilled. Ironically, Magnitogorsk did serve as the showcase of the Soviets' promised technological utopia. Unfortunately for the technocrats, what it showed was not how the machinery of the modern age would magically free those who had never been free, but how the very system of technological planning was fundamentally flawed, unable to provide even for the most basic needs of the citizenry. 
Remarkably, even now, long after the 20th century technocrats and their vision of the industrial nirvana have been so thoroughly discredited, after hundreds of years of utopian socialist fantasies have shown to lead to nothing but suffering and bloodshed, there is a new class of technocrats who are rising up to once again offer the masses a technological utopia which will provide for all their needs. Once again we are being told that in this coming utopia, an army of benevolent machines will provide for all our needs. There will be no need for money or property, no need for violence or coercion of any kind ever again. In fact, we are told, this technological revolution will not only transform our society, but human nature itself. Freed from the shackles of want by the machines that will provide for all our needs, humans will no longer be violent or selfish or greedy. This system, we are told, will be rational and logical. The machines will know what resources are needed, how to acquire them, and how to distribute them. The machines will be able to calculate our needs and provide for them better than we ever could. The machines will be programmed by scientists, and, we are led to believe, they will always know how many toothbrushes to make. There is no need to worry about who owns the machines, we are told. No cause for concern about how they are programmed, or how they, or how they make calculations about things we don't know. In this utopia, the proponents of this movement tell us there will be no evil people, no elite class that tries to control others, no one at all who tries to control the system, because human nature itself will no longer allow for it. Ultimately, perhaps it is not surprising that such utopian fantasies can still attract acolytes. The masses have always wanted the quick fix, the wave of the magic wand that will free them from this world of work, toil, and strife forever. How appealing it is to be offered the promise of a perfect system, a way to organize our society that, would, that will allow us to live in peace and harmony forever. After all, if such a system were really possible, who wouldn't want to attain it? But that, then, is the danger of the utopian ideal. The fact that it is always just out of reach, always just one step further down the path of good intentions, means that those who are willing to use this utopian fantasy to lead society in a dictatorial direction can dangle it before the public like a carrot to lead them down the garden path. It is, in short, nothing but a tool to enslave the public in the name of creating the perfect society. Indeed, not just to enslave them, but to get them to work toward their own enslavement. Until this is realized, utopia will always be a powerful motivating force for shaping our society. Those who promise a world of plenty, where we will receive everything for nothing, will always be popular with the public, looking for an easy solution to all their problems. And those who warn about the dangers of utopian thinking will never be popular. They will always be cast as obstacles in the path of the ideal society and dismissed as charlatans by the masses who are swept into revolutionary fervor, their judgment clouded by the comforting fog of utopian visions. No, it is never a popular thing to warn against utopia, but it is nonetheless necessary. For the Corbett Report in Western Japan, I am James Corbett. All right, once again, that comes from a video entitled uh, The Last Word on Utopia, which I put out last year. And once again, the link will be in the show notes for today's episode. So you can go and read the transcript and follow the links to various things that are cited in that uh, transcript. And that includes something that I had to edit out of the audio of that because it was in Russian and thus not really listenable by you out there in Radioland. But it includes some clips from a documentary, an Adam Curtis BBC documentary called Pandora's Box, which is highly recommended. And it shows some of the examples of that Soviet nightmare of central planning that was tried out and some of the just the ridiculous nature of that uh, that economic calculation problem we were talking about earlier with people trying to determine even how 
how many toothbrushes to to uh, produce for the Soviet people or how many pairs of pantyhose needed to be produced. So they would have to collect reams of da- data on every single person and try to uh, to punch it through these computer systems in order to come out with how many toothbrushes needed to be produced, etc., etc. And they would always invariably get it wrong, and there would always be shortages and or surpluses of any particular good, and it was a ridiculous way to run a society. But again, regardless of the specific technical details, we should not fall into the trap of saying, well, if only they could do it perfectly, it would be a good society, because the basis of this centrally planned idea of an economy is that if anyone refutes the or goes against what the central planners want they become criminals they become outlaws so this is a, a an idea that is fundamentally based on violence and violent coercion instead of uh, free interaction which is what the free market economy is based on and which is the only moral way to run a system so this is not an argument from effect this is an argument from principle it is immoral to force your will on someone else through the barrel of a gun which is exactly what governments do when they step into a situation and which reaches its full culmination in this type of centrally planned utopia where everyone is forced to slot themselves into that system whether they want it or not. So free market economy is not a utopia by any means. There will be bankruptcies. People will fail. There will be unemployment. There will be bad things that happen. But that is a consequence of freedom and there is nothing that can be done to eliminate that or provide people with perfect security. And perfect security is the nightmare society that we're trying to avoid. So what is the solution to all of this and the encroaching centralization of power and authority that they're trying to push on us? Well, let's come back to that after this break as we come back to wrap things up here on Corbett Report Radio. All right, welcome back to the program, friends. Here we are in the final few minutes of tonight's broadcast, the Friday night edition of Corbett Report Radio. And tonight we've been going over central planning and the idea of centralization of command and control over the economy, and I think more broadly over various other aspects of our daily lives by a central authority that claims to have the ability to be able to calculate what it is we need and provide for it, and the moral authority to do so. And I think there are good reasons why both of those claims are incorrect, and we've gone over some of them in this episode. As I say, this is only a one-hour radio broadcast, so we're not exactly able to plumb the very depths of all of this, so I will suggest you follow the links to the various articles and videos and things that I've cited today in order to find out more about this, and as I say, I will also be covering the topic of the mechanistic or deterministic universe which underlies the ideas of the central planners and how that itself is fundamentally flawed in the next edition of my podcast, which will go up on CorbettReport.com on Monday. So if you're not subscribed to my RSS feeds to get all of these podcasts and radio shows and interviews and videos and articles delivered directly to your inbox or to your podcatcher, I should say, then I suggest you do so. It's completely free to sign up for those feeds at CorbettReport.com slash subscribe. And there's even a video there to show you how to subscribe to an RSS feed if you don't know how to do so. But let's just finish up tonight on a positive note by pointing out that although this there is a lot of philosophical uh, jargon and things to go through and a lot of concepts that need to be fleshed out to to really get to the bottom of this this issue of central planning and why it is fundamentally flawed 
it isn't really rocket science. And people at a basic level understand that people who come along and say, don't worry, we'll take care of everything. Just give us power over each and every aspect of your life. People understand that there's something wrong with that, and they're inherently opposed to it. They have to be convinced or more accurately coerced through the threat of violence into going along with such a system. So if they have a choice, they will almost invariably choose freedom. And that is a problem for the central planners and those who want to control our lives. So let's take a look at a very interesting op-ed that appeared in the Japan Times just uh, the other day, August 9th, 2012. It's under the title, Populism is Destroying Globalism, and it's by Shinji Fukukawa. And it says, quote, Globalism is now faltering. The international community can neither exert its power to block the Syrian government forces from taking repressive actions, nor take any effective steps to deter nuclear developments in Iran and North Korea. Security deterioration continues in Iraq, while threats of terrorism remain in Afghanistan and Pakistan. The Israeli-Palestinian confrontation is in a critical situation, and the Yemeni civil war shows no sign of settlement. These developments are taking place against the background of the United Nations' failure to fulfill its original function of ensuring security around the world. The deterrence of the United States is weakening, and both Russia and China are maneuvering to place priority on their national interests. In the economic arena, equal... Equalization of national power has helped to deepen polarization, and the Group of Eight has passed on its role of discussing global economic issues to the Group of Twenty. But no effective measures have been worked out yet to cope with the, yet to cope with the serious financial crisis and business recession confronting the world. In addition, the European Union's sovereign debt risks have destabilized the euro system and put international financial markets into confusion. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. There's not enough time to continue going on with this op-ed, but I do suggest you continue reading through it, because basically what this author is arguing that is that it's a terrible thing that the people seem to be blocking this globalist agenda at each and every turn, because the politicians want to pander to the people, and the people just don't want this centralization of authority. They don't want to cede all of their sovereignty to the United Nations and the International Monetary Fund and the WTO and all of these other organizations, because the people know that central planning sucks, and they know what it represents, which is tyranny. So the people are the answer. We understand what's happening. We have to block their agenda at every possible opportunity. With that, Tonight's episode is finished. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thanks for joining me. See you next week.